0: This episode is sponsored by our very limited time and free training, three strategies to jumpstart your junior developer career, specifically designed for moms. In this free training, I'll cover the strategies necessary to become a junior full stack developer, including the exact skills employers are looking for. You'll learn how to maximize your income with portfolio ready skills that hiring managers are seeking, not to mention, the steps to skip so you don't find yourself down that endless tech learning rabbit hole. Join me live for the three strategies to jumpstart your junior developer portfolio. Sign up at uartechy.com slash dev, that's Y-O-U-A-R-E-T-E-C-H-Y dot com slash D-E-V. I'll see you there. I'm fangirling over today's guest, and if you don't know her, for why I'm so excited you will soon. I'm thrilled to introduce our guest, Denise Schull for her pioneering work in neuropsychoanalysis, her high-performance coaching work, and her groundbreaking application of psychological principles to high finance trading. Denise is in the business of helping professionals elevate their game through the conscious processing of emotions. She began by helping financial professionals, specifically Wall Street traders, And then moved on to other rock star performers such as c-suite sports and entertainment professionals denise started her career as a wall street trader enabling her to see the hearts and minds of those executing hundreds of decisions a day repeatedly buy sell hold repeat based on seemingly factual information what she found most decisions are made through the emotional filter more than the logical data we think we're making it through. This is true in the most technical financial situations, and I'm sure you can see why I think the topic is extremely relevant to the technology field as well. In addition to her work on Wall Street, Denise pursued a master's from the University of Chicago in neuropsychoanalysis. Her undergrad from the University of Akron is in biology, encompassing both nutrition and computer science. She's the author of Market Mind Games, a book I've read at least three times, which is a seminal work in the field of neuropsychoanalysis and the psychology of risk. Denise has run the very popular Rethink Group for the last 17 years, where she and her team architect exceptional performance in market, sports, and entertainment leaders. Most recently, Denise has released Intuition Brain Games, a game-based software that elevates your decision-making capabilities through game-based play and engagement. Denise, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Ellen.
0: I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. As I said, I've read your book several times, and it was really seminal for me to understand how emotional context and technical situations is you know, a big part of, of the work of decision-making. But I know this wasn't always the standard that people knew and were uh, familiar with. So can you take us back to the genesis of the Rethink Group and how did you come up with that idea? And you know, was it a big emotional leap for you at the time?
1: Yeah, so actually, I mean, there's really two pieces of it. I did do my master's degree in neuropsychoanalysis um, and then I became a trader, but I was taking um part-time classes at an institute of modern psychoanalysis. And I had found out that those particular psychoanalysts, which are different than their, the classic Freudian, that they had had some success with schizophrenia through their techniques. And I had this sort of idea in my head, like literally it went like this, really? Like, okay, if you guys help schizophrenics, you could help these crazy traders I work with. <laughs> So like that was the that, that was the literal seed of this. But around that time they were doing a journal issue because they had a small academic journal on neuroscience and psychoanalysis and they knew of my master's thesis and they said, "Can we publish it in this journal?" And it was written in ni- 1994 and this was 2003 and I'm like, "Well, you could, but you're going to look really stupid cuz it's really <laughs> old." Um in retrospect, they might have not have looked as stupid as I thought they would at the time, but I'm like, I'm not putting my name on that unless I update it, and updating is a big deal, but blah, blah, blah. They convinced me to do it, and I thought oh, it would be fun to have an article in an academic journal. So when I went to research updating that, Antonio Damasio and a group of scientists at University of Southern California, they were at Iowa before, but had shown that we have to have emotion to make a decision, or at least they have done a fair amount of research work that seemed to be indicating we can't make we can't make any decision
0: mm-hmm. without
1: emotion. What that really amounts to is you you don't do anything either unless you're confident about it's the right thing to do, or like you're afraid and you're avoiding something. And I was like, darn, like all this trading psychology I've been reading and pouring over for years, like step one, take the emotion out of it. And I'm like, if you took the emotion out of it, you couldn't do it. Like, mm-hmm. This is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I kind of had like these modern psychoanalysts had some technique for working with you know crazy people like the traders I work with, and then the science was showing you have to have emotion to make a decision, which was just like a wildly groundbreaking. And I mean, even today, seventeen years later, you can see a major financial institution who will put out an ad that has something about take the emotion out of it, control the emotion. You know, I have to mm-hmm. see that all the time on Twitter. I mean, I've just learned for the most part to ignore it, but. I was telling a trader I traded with who I didn't know very well about this. Like, I'm like, this is like really changes the game. And he's like, you got to write an article. And I'm like, oh, yeah, right. Like, so I have had the academic article published. He's like, no, you got to write an article for a magazine. I'm like, who's going to publish an article by me? So it turns out he repped this famous trader behind the scenes. And he knew all these magazine you know, editors and whatnot. And he got me an article. And I thought that would be it. Yeah, i write this article. It's called Freud's Path to Profits. It was published in December 2004. I thought that'd be it. And then people start calling. <laughs> and you thought, I'll jump I'll jump careers. Let me start. Well, with- no, no, I didn't at the time. I was still trading. I'd become a member. I don't think I was a member yet, but I became a member of the Chicago Board of Trade at the time, which was going from trading stocks to trading futures. But I thought, well, this would be kind of cool. And it, it like... To this day, I say I'm in this position essentially because I was telling the truth, It'd Be meaning that I would say things and people would relate to it. Mm-hmm. And they would say things like, oh, my gosh, I thought it was just me or like, oh, my gosh, that never made sense or oh my, like a few years later, I don't know, 2005 or six, I was invited to speak at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange after the trading floors closed. Mm-hmm. And like 200 guys and a friend of mine who was still a floor trader said. These guys sat still for an hour after trading day. Like that never, ever, ever happens. And, you know, one guy after another, one guy walked out in the middle. That usually happened. Um, but one guy to, you know, multiple guys came up to me afterwards and said, I, like, I thought it was just me. I never told anybody that I use my emotions. Because, like I couldn't say <laughs> it that. Was a
0: secret. I didn't want anyone to know.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it really took on a life of its own. And then it kind of seemed like. My whole life was leading up to doing this because I'd like all the time, even growing up, I'd sort of never bought the, you know, just suck it up or just be happy. Like it never made any sense to me. Mm-hmm. I can remember my then best friend, like right after college, saying to me one day, Well, you know, if you smile, it'll just make you happy. And I was like, Okay, let's try it. they <laughs> it working? You know, like, I mean, we were 23 and like, you know, having that sort of his life, really what we thought it was, but I'm like, I don't think it's working. Like, so I just wasn't ever satisfied mm-hmm. myself, which is partially how I got into a master's degree in neuropsychoanalysis to begin with. Right. Like I was just so perplexed about why we think, do, feel the ways that we do. And I just didn't think the answers were there. mm mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know as it turns out and I mean this is still really really true the model of the mind that most people are working on is wrong it's Mm -hmm. just wrong we think that our you know analytical and logical abilities are our superior abilities because they've allowed us to you know create the internet and land on the moon and all the things that we do as human beings but it's we still like the the underlying mechanism of perception and judgment mm-hmm. is is not only how we feel, it's really how we're predicting we will feel.
0: Okay, can you can you explain that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, the, the scientific term for it is anticipatory affect,
0: mm-hmm. meaning
1: you're anticipating an affect. Mm-hmm. Essentially, subconsciously, the brain's always predicting what's coming next and what the implications will be of anything based on our past experience. Now, all that experience, you know, we've learned it, you know, really since we were conceived, right? Like it's all Mm -hmm. subconscious. Like even now you don't know it, you're, but you're literally, your brain is predicting the next words that are going to come out of my mouth Hmm. based on like what you know about me, your experience with the English language. A way I always tell people to test this, Is uh, like have someone hand you a cup of coffee, but tell you it could be super hot and it could be ice, and you don't know, and you won't know until you hold it in your hand. And if someone's really paying attention, there'll be like a split second there where you're like, "Is it hot or is it cold?" You don't know. It's Mm -hmm. in your hand, but you don't know because you didn't know what to expect. Mm -hmm. So that's the gap that's happening subconsciously, where we're doing this prediction, but we're just not aware of it this basic prediction as the mechanism of how our brain works is being shown in a number of different labs in a number of different ways. Some people are focused on like the prediction of thoughts and cognition, but I think the best work is being done primarily out of Stanford, but it's, it's other places where they really are showing that we're predicting feelings. I mean, even take the political climate we're in and like how, you know, It's clear, like, we can't talk to each other, right? Part of it is because people are so stuck in this prediction of what will happen if the other side gets their way, that the reason everyone's just stuck is because they're sure this horrible thing is going to happen. So we can't talk about, like, facts and logic and evidence, because the prediction of that this horrible thing is going to happen is overwhelming all of that. Mm -hmm. You know, as it turns out, like originally, back in 2003, Damasio and company showing you have to have emotion to make a decision. And they would show things like people that were brain damaged in a way that they had no emotion, couldn't decide what day to make an appointment on or what shirt to wear. They couldn't decide anything because they're lacking the like feeling that it's the right thing. Like right. you and I, you and I look at our calendar and go, well, I'm really busy on Thursday, so maybe I should do that thing on Friday, or you know, but they couldn't. I always tell people whatever realm you're in there's the the facts and the logic and the data and well there's whatever there's the situation you don't make your decision based on your knowledge of that. You make your decision based on your feeling about it
0: so how do we? How does emotion affect action? And even maybe take that a step further because you work with high performance, or how do we leverage that emotion to impact our actions for high
1: performance? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, first of all, everything we do, we do because of a feeling, Mm -hmm. period. Yeah. So, so we have to decide like, are we going to, do we want to know that? Some people don't want to know because they're afraid of what they'll find out. Right. But if you want to get better at anything, yeah you start with deciding you're willing to know everything about what you feel mm-hmm. and then you're willing to undertake the work to sort it out to find what feelings are really about the here and now and what feelings are just from your past experience you know let's just take an athlete who fails at a certain type of contest but wins in other contests mm-hmm you know, they're coming up on the contest they fail in and they're going to feel like they're just jinxed there, right? And they're actually expecting to fail and expecting to feel bad in most cases. Now, sports psychology will never let them admit that because the standard way of thinking about it is if you think you're going to fail, you will. Mm -hmm. That's not actually how it works. It's if you feel like you're going to Mm. or you're afraid you're going to. Mm -hmm. but the zeitgeist of positive thinking doesn't let most people, particularly most athletes, look at that or be honest about it. So they tell themselves, you know, this is just another contest and this time is different than last time. They use all these cognitive thought-based techniques to change how they feel. Occasionally, occasionally using your thoughts to change how you feel works. What some of the research shows is it works in stuff that doesn't matter that much. Like, in other words, your intellect is powerful enough to change your true feelings. If the, if this situation just isn't that important to you, like I was still, you know, going to your in-laws for Thanksgiving, like maybe you could get through the crazy uncle thing because it, you know, you only have to do it once a year. <laughs> um, but if it's really important to you, your intellect changing your feelings isn't going to work. So the, the way to do it is just to admit to yourself what you really feel and why you really feel it and develop the courage to be brutal. And you don't have to be brutal with yourself, but it really is the courage to admit to essentially your deepest and darkest fears and feelings and realize that when you shine the light on them, when you put them into words, they actually lose their power in sort of a like, you know, I don't know why this is coming to mind, but you know, vampires don't live in the daylight. Like, <laughs> it's like that. But there's so much information out there that like tells people to do exactly the opposite, you know, that their, their negative thoughts are going to cause them problems. It's actually their so-called negative feelings and their inability to look at them that are going to cause them problems so wow. that they can be, they can think positive all day long and then wonder why they still did X. Because the feeling, which is the fuel for the behavior got acted out. And like the thing that always gets me, I was telling someone this just recently. Like, it's not that I wanna be focused on the the unpleasant feelings, but I'm so scared of what will happen if I don't. Like, I don't want, you know, the vampire coming over my shoulder when I least expect it. Like, I wanna know so that then I have, like, some control over the situation. Like, I don't understand not wanting to know the truth about yourself, about a situation, Mm -hmm. like, by definition, If you don't know the truth of yourself or the situation, you've got like an enemy, you know, you've got like a risk, like a big unknown that could bite you at the worst possible moment, which is what happens. And then people go, the other thing that happens is with all the positive thinking pressure (laughs) and all the, all the fear of, you know, people are afraid to feel bad. Like, heck, it's like, that makes it, that makes the ability to feel bad a competitive advantage. Like if you have the fortitude and the courage yep. to sort through the stuff that feels crappy, you're in a better position than all the people who don't. And a lot of people don't. So, okay. So a lot
0: of things you're talking about here, I just want to talk about one emotion. Okay. Is fear an emotion. Yeah. What does fear cause us to do? Or does that one come up? Do you, do you coach on that? Do you, do you have to get past fear or do you have to feel fear? Well, like, how do you deal with that emotion?
1: Like Just this morning, I had a conversation with a trader. We decided he was going to make a list of everything he was afraid of if he brought his success to the next level. In short, he's afraid of if he's more successful, his family will reject him. Mm -hmm. You know, he shouldn't be making money. He shouldn't be making money gambling in the markets. You know, and so what will happen in his case is if he... Gets in touch with that beer and like shines the sunlight on it, so to speak, it will have less power to influence his behavior. Because what's happening now is when he's faced with a trade that he could make a lot of money on, he can't take it. (sighs)
0: Wow. That's fascinating. I mean, it's so, I mean, I see this all the time in a different realm. So it doesn't shock me. It's just fascinating. I mean, I see it all the time. And it's like, no, 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 but if you move here, you know, I help women get hired in tech. So you're staying at home with your kids. You're going to get hired in tech and you're, and they're still in this mindset of what they're doing. And I'm like, yeah, but your, your life is going to be totally different here. How do we look at that? And that's like all the fear associated with the next step or the next, and oftentimes they'll volunteer. They'll be doing the actual work without being paid. And it's like the hurdle they have to overcome is, is just, yeah, making money or what is it?
1: You know, I'm just speculating off the top of my head. Never really thought about that problem. But like, okay, you're going to be afraid of leaving your kids. You're going to be afraid of criticized for doing it. You know, you're going to be afraid of what your husband might think. But truth is, is if you get all that stuff out, first of all, just that, just admitting to the truth of all the things you're actually afraid of will make you less afraid of some of them. Like there's this phenomenon when people just have the courage, then you go, Oh, wait a minute. Well, like, you know, three, four and five really aren't that big of a deal. Okay. So now I'm left with one and seven. What can I do with one and seven? Mm-hmm. Now that piece, like that my trader where people are afraid of like the next level of success and how their family will react to that. That's not always that easy for people to do on their own. It oftentimes is helpful to have someone to that can help you see that kind of stuff. But like all human beings are subject to what was expected of them and what role they should play, where they fit in the, you know, we all absorb messages messages as we're growing up about where we fit and what our status is. And, you know, even then like another realm is making money good or bad, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, I can imagine, like I can imagine a woman, a, a mother, who's got conflicts around this. So well, by the way, it's, you can always think of it that way. Like, what are my conflicts? Uh-huh. It's usually the case. You have one set of feelings and another set of feelings and they're in conflict, but you never get to even resolve the conflict because you don't, sometimes you don't even realize it is a conflict. But, but by not getting paid, it resolves some of those conflicts. Uh-huh. right? Oftentimes people have to grapple with the idea that I am good at this thing. Uh-huh. I can do this thing. I have value. And a lot of people have grown up, you know, being criticized or even heavily criticized. Sometimes it's not necessarily by your parents. It's like, if you're the youngest child, like I had a client who was the youngest of four and super successful bazillions of dollars in a way, not billions, but like millions and millions of dollars. But he was always like acting out the need to be considered smart by his older brothers and sisters, you know, because he was the baby. And of course they made fun of him and I could never get him to see that his need to get into the trade that the guys down the street were in was just because, like, he wanted his older brother to think he was smart. One day, I was in his office. His older brother came in, and he's like, "You know, are you going to fix him?" Blah, blah blah blah. And I'm like, "I don't know. Am I?" I'm like, "Let me ask you a question. When you were five and he was one or two, what'd you do to him?" He's like, "Oh my God! I used to like sit on him and spit on him and <laughs> tell him he was worthless." And I look at my client and I go, and you don't think that has anything to do with it? It doesn't have anything to do with anything. And his older brother goes, yes, it does. Like listen to her. That's your whole problem. My point is it's oftentimes hard for people to see that thing for themselves. Mm-hmm. You're right. But in his case also, he was too he was too afraid to know that. Like mm-hmm. he's defended against knowing that. It takes courage to both feel the feelings, attribute them accurately. Mm-hmm. And like understand what's really going on. And I think that anything we do along that road moves us forward.
0: Right, right. So like when you first started out, I mean, you described how you like, you had a room full of guys sitting there after the trading day, okay, one left. But I mean, did you have a lot of hurdles when you were trying to convince uh, individual hurdles so that people don't want to face their own fears? But like, did you have a lot of hurdles convincing people like, no, actually this is impacting your trades? or there were a lot of people that were like, yeah, that, that's totally true.
1: It's funny you ask that because it does remind me of, I actually spoke at the Merck twice. And the first time I got a call from a, a professor who was then at Northwestern University, this was like 2005 or six and it was simulcast. This was before we could do this. I got this call from this person I never heard of at Northwestern saying, I can't believe you just told a room full of men that they have to pay attention to their emotions. And I was like, well, they do. (laughs) Now, I also think, you know, we've done okay and we've built a a little consulting company, but, you know, by the definition, there's a, you know, there's literally millions of possible clients in the world. And the ones that call us probably have some idea what they're gonna have to talk about, right? So so in other words, we have a self-selecting bias. Now, having said that, I mean, like I have a client this year who's in private equity and wanted me to help him lead more. And I am I mean, I've been working with him frequently, twice a week since January. I'm just now getting him to sort of kind of admit what he really feels. Now, he's been making progress. Sometimes if you just talk about your situation freely with someone you trust, there's like some unconscious magic that will help you just. Do better, mm-hmm. like even without understanding all of it. Like, I still, I mean, like yesterday, I got to, you know, totally trash me up one side and down the other review of my book on Amazon. There are people on Wall Street who, whatever, have blogs or podcasts, and you would think that they would have interviewed me now. By now, just all things considered, won't give me the time of day. Why? Like, I know why. They know who I I am and what the essential message is. It's because they don't want to go there. But I still like whatever success I or the Rethink group have achieved, I honestly think it's simply because I had this interest that I refused to give up on because none of the answers were satisfactory to me. Mm -hmm. And then when I started speaking about it, it resonated with enough people because it was the truth that, you know, that brought us clients. So we don't, I always tell me like, we don't need to have every, we can't even have enable everybody anyway, you know? I always
0: think the negative book reviews too are funny. Like they're all, there's so much insecurity revealed by the person <laughs> that it's like, I mean, I know, I'm sure it's unpleasant, but it's like, oh, okay. Thank you for sharing all that insecurity with us. Cause you yeah. obviously, it struck a chord.
1: Yeah, I, I in this case, I, I mean, my book has a long history of getting ones and fives on Amazon. I didn't know <laughs> For the longest time I literally had like until the last couple of years, I had no threes, zero. And so every once in a while, like once every year or two, I put that on Twitter. So yesterday I took a screenshot cause I had two fives that were really good. And this one, you know, and I'm like, well, the streak continues, <laughs> you know, and, and people on Twitter were like, that's great. You know, that like means you struck a chord, right? Yes. Some people are going to go running like, you know, And other people are going to go. I love it. Like, and all I can tell people is like, look, so many people struggle with. Why the heck did I just do that? Yeah. Like even my private equity guy was in a meeting the other day where like he could have brought up the fact that he should get a better title, and he didn't. And he's kicking himself. Why the heck didn't I bring it up? Why the heck didn't I bring it up? Why the heck didn't I bring it up? I I know that if I'd really gotten him to talk about, if I had been able to break through the resistance and been able to get him to talk about the fears. Earlier, he probably would have brought it up. If you have an unconscious fear of something, it will stop you at exactly the moment you don't want it to.
0: So I want to I want to dive into this a little bit, and I and I want to talk about the book. I have a I have a quote here from the book that I'm, I'm excited to to ask you more about, and it has to do with this exact topic. And and in the book, in Market Mind Games, you say judgment calls must be made to fill in the gaps between where the numbers leave off in the alpha or exceptional performance begins. And just for my audience, alpha is active return on investment. Is that a suitable?
1: It's, it's ec- excess return on investment. So like you, you could invest straight in S&P 500 or straight in the Dow and you're gonna get whatever the market does. Yep. Alpha is like when, because you were actively investing and making decisions, you get more than what the market does.
0: Perfect. So how do you direct or improve Those judgment calls.
1: I think you you take on the question of always knowing what am I feeling and why. Mm -hmm. I will expand that now to what am I predicting I will feel Mm -hmm. and why. And essentially you build a dictionary on yourself. You learn when your confidence feels like this, you know, and I don't mean small, I mean in a certain shape Mm -hmm. or when your confidence feels like that. Like you start to learn these different, they really are pieces of visceral intelligence. Like when you're the sensation in your body is giving you a piece of information, what a particular type of sensation means to you. Mm -hmm. So you're able to separate intuition, which is really unconscious pattern recognition based on the expertise you've developed from impulse which is some feeling that you have to do something to prevent something from happening. And I even said it the way that I did because like intuition is calm. Mm -hmm. And impulse, which is like always based on some other feeling that's not relevant, is agitated. Jennifer Lerner of Harvard calls it, and she's done a lot of work around emotion, decision-making and risk decision-making. She calls it integral. Is the feeling integral to the situation you're working with? Or is it incidental? I call it, generally speaking, is the feeling information about the situation you're working with or irrelevant, meaning it's about something else. You know, it may be about the fact that your brother beat you up and criticized you and you need to deal with that. But it's not about your colleague. or in trading is it intuition or impulse, but they're all the same. Like, is the feeling relevant or not? And the only way you learn to do that is, number one, to tackle it and then practice. Mm mm-hmm. Now, then at the end, even after practice, there's this step where, do you believe yourself? Do you have the guts to go with your intuition? I cannot tell you how many portfolio managers and traders behind the scenes, no matter how elegantly in a sophisticated manner, they can describe their market program at the end of the day, it's intuition.
0: Okay. So it's It's not thematic. They can explain it. They can, here's how I logically have my system set up. But really, they're acting off their intuition.
1: Well, what they're doing, they do all these steps to find Mm -hmm. out all this information. But the steps, the steps, like, drop out of feeling. They tell their trader to buy or sell based on the feeling. We're always working with people to understand that spectrum of feelings in a way that they can pull the information out. Like that they know this feeling means that, or that feeling means this, or if I, you know, if I'm all jumbled and I don't know how I feel, I need to go figure out how I feel before I decide.
0: You talk about building a dictionary of emotions of yourself, the, the emotions as information can be different for each person. or, do, or totally,
1: does totally. Well, and the other thing is, I mean, and I, I remind my clients of this all the time, none of us will ever know how the other person actually feels. Mm-hmm. right like all we can know is what happens inside our bodies mm-hmm. what our sensations are you know you and I can talk and you can describe a feeling and what you the words that come out of your mouth sound to me like something that's happened to me and I'll go well oh, and I get it and it resonates and we feel like we're connected but we don't really know if the right. way you experience that is the way you yeah. just know that the language will make it sound as if it's the same uh-huh we don't really know so I I give people, like, a spectrum in in the investment world of conviction, like, how much you believe. Mm -hmm. It's basically how much you believe your prediction. And then I build out, like, all of the things that can influence that. So, like, fear of missing out and fear of future regret and fear of being wrong. Because people tend to feel those things. But different people feel these different fears in different quantities Mm -hmm. and in different ways in their body. Uh-huh. You no, know, it's not always going to be in your back or your shoulder or your gut or whatever. Like it depends.
0: And are we taught to not
1: feel? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Like that's an understatement. Well, first of all, like we know, you know, for a fact, most men are brought up as little boys. with, you know, like don't cry. You know, or, my husband always says when he played football, like pee wee football, I was like, well, rub some dirt on him and go away. Yeah. You know. <laughs> um, but there's lots of other ways we're taught not to feel. Religion tends to teach people not to feel, mm-hmm. you know, you're supposed to have a faith that the world works this way. And let's say you have, you know, you have a lot of feelings about some situation, you're just supposed to have faith that it will work out if you're in a very religious situation. It's really unlikely that anyone's going to be really un- empathetic to your fears, frustrations, and disappointments because, sort of, by definition, if you have those things, you're not having enough faith. And I don't mm-hmm. care what religion it is; mm-hmm. pick any of. Them. Yeah,
0: that's um, interesting. That's really interesting. Give it up to God. That's that's a phrase yeah, I Give yeah. it up. To
1: yeah, but now, it's, uh, now also there is a you know even in people who are let's say agnostic, there is a religion of positive thinking. I had someone who interviewed you. Yeah, it's probably been three years ago now a successful entrepreneur and he told me that like he goes you know oh my gosh you're so right he goes i he goes you know i have challenges and struggles trying to grow this business he goes and i don't have anybody i can talk to anymore because like all my friends will you know number one say you're successful but number two like well don't be afraid or don't be frustrated because if you're afraid or frustrated you'll just create more of the fear of frustration He's like, I can't even tell anybody. Like, I don't have anyone to really work. Like he goes, I have some challenge and it's really frustrating. And I want someone to work through it. it will help me decide. He goes, I don't have anyone to talk to you because no one can tolerate me being frustrated. Now, I, that is starting to change somewhat. Like last, just last night, I was quoted in an article in Fast Company that I wasn't even interviewed for. But it was like, I don't, I don't even remember the exact headline, but it's something like positive thinking isn't all it's cracked up to be. And like there was a book a number of years ago called The Upside of Your Dark Side, which was largely about being able to tolerate your negative, so-called negative emotions. They're not even negative. They are unpleasant experiences with information uh-huh. that to lead you to some piece of information. We call them negative because they're unpleasant, but like they're unpleasant for a reason. Like, anyway, I probably got off the track from what you asked no,
0: me. I mean, uh, well, I think the, I mean, my, my point is that we, sometimes I think that You know we're raised not to feel because other people can't handle our feelings.
1: A hundred percent.
0: This is what my husband. I so I he really appreciates how I help him out with this one. But the you know with our kids that they're crying, he's like, "Don't cry." I'm like, "They're gonna cry," but that's how we're raised. Like, don't do that. No, don't be a because because why? Because we as parents, we want oh we want to be great. We want to be good at it. So I I think there are a lot of uh, layers to that. But um, oh,
1: there's well, there's a lot of layers to all of this. But you're. a you're 100% right that the less comfortable any one given person is Mm -hmm. with all of their feelings, the less comfortable they're going to be with someone else having those feelings. Totally. Totally. Now, also what's going to happen is the person who's uncomfortable with their feelings are going to act those feelings out. Mm. And someone who's more aware is going to be able to see them acting them out.
0: Yeah.
1: Like just take passive aggressiveness. Like all the things that happen in the, you know, mildly passive aggressive, like what? The person's irritated and mad and they won't admit to it. Mm-hmm. So They say some subtly sarcastic thing that's acting out that anger. They'd be better off to say, you know, I'm frustrated about this. Yeah. Because it doesn't create the same, neither for them nor the other person, the same kind of putrid feeling. Right. Yeah. Which only, only then generates more, you know, resentment, and then it snowballs. Yeah,
0: passive-aggressive just kind of builds resistance on it, you know, more of that. Oh, that's super interesting. Okay, I have to ask a few more questions because we're not even getting through. You're too interesting. Stop being so interesting. I would be, like, remiss if I didn't ask this one. So for those people who haven't watched Billions, it's not a kid show. And if you watch it and then you're judging me, sorry, because it's
1: definitely, definitely not a kid show.
0: It's definitely an extreme show. You know, you did do some consulting for the Wendy Rhodes character and it's I mean, it's super interesting character because I just there isn't, you know, how many med med shows and lawyer shows and we don't have a lot of financial trading coaches out there. So I'm curious, you know, what was that like? And then how do you feel about your work being portrayed as entertainment? You know, what does that mean? You're like you're in that category of interesting work.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'm first got to be point blank. You know, I have a lawsuit with them, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what it was like at the beginning, I mean, at the very beginning, I get this email from Andrew Ross Sorkin, who was one of the original creators saying, hey, you know, if you know, I'm on, I'm working on this show and there's this actress who's playing a female hedge fund performance coach and she wants to talk to you. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, so I Google it and I find out that they'd sold this show and sure enough, and I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. So I'm thinking I'm going to go have a glass of wine with her, you know? Mm-hmm. And before I knew it, honest to God, like make my head spin, I was in the writer's room with the two other writers, Brian Koppelman and David. I don't know. I never know if it's Levy or Levine. And she's not even there. Oh, geez. And they're asking me to tell them like everything I know. But I did up to a certain extent when I realized, wait a minute, this is like there's something not right about this. And then I kept in contact with her and they wanted me to work with her. And but, you know, it sort of like went into never, never like it. Then they just all went dark on me. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, that was really weird. Mm -hmm. Like, and What was that about? And I really I honestly it was like just sort of dumbfounded. But the truth is, I was releasing the first version of the brain game that you brought up Mm -hmm. um, with Bloomberg and I was like too busy to really think about it. So then the show comes out and. Everybody is like, oh my God, Denise, you're on television. Like, that's you. Like, I, I remember I was at a, an Australia Day party in New Jersey, and someone, they were talking about the show. It'd only been out like three weeks or whatever. And someone said, that's her. <laughs> so, like, at that point in time, and also at that point in time, you know, she starts out as a dominatrix.
0: Right. right. And so everybody's clear, making- clear You consulted on the career portion, to be
1: clear. Yeah, to be clear. That... Although I will tell you, I have had to answer that dominatrix thing almost every talk I've given subsequent to.
0: Are you serious?
1: Yeah, I mean. Oh, my God. Or some joke about it or something, you know. So, like, at that point in time, I didn't really know how she was going to turn out. You know, I knew they had, like, taken a bunch of stuff from me and, and like, went dark. But I also was like, okay, everybody's talking to me about it. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to, like, ignore it. And it became impossible. I couldn't go, I couldn't go to a current client meeting, a new client meeting, a hedge fund cocktail party. I couldn't go anywhere really without, without, you know, anyone that was in the hedge fund business who knew what I did was like, you're on TV. Now, at that point, I hadn't said a word about consulting, hadn't said a word. I didn't say a word about it for a long time. It's been bizarre. Like, so the first thing was like, I think I got, you know, sort of baited and switched Then I couldn't escape it. Mm -hmm. Then I finally admitted to it. Then like, they came after me. They told me I I couldn't tell anybody. And I'm like, "Uh, we didn't sign an NDA. (laughs) I don't know. It's just the truth. And then I had to hire an entertainment lawyer to answer them telling me. And then I found out this whole thing about how entertainment works. And, you know, everyone just said, just tell the truth. So I've just been telling the truth. Makes sense to me. But at, as it's gone on, there have been moments where, like I got an email the first year on the magical thinking episode from a client in Australia I hadn't heard from from for three years. And he says, Oh my gosh, that was just social. And then there was a you know, there's been so many incidences where her dialogue and, and her dialogue with Taylor has been like one time I had to turn television off.
0: Because it was so similar.
1: And my husband is, you know, he's an economist by training, and he's, you know, he's not like always going to pick up on any, any little emotional subtlety. And he looked at me and he goes, "That sounds exactly like you." Really? Yeah. And I, I mean, I had a journalist in New York who said, "Well, everyone knows it's you. Like, mm-hmm. no one thinks it's not you." Mm-hmm. This is when I was explaining that, you know, like, I mean, I've had a lot of journalists who won't talk to me anymore. Um, basically, because if you need to be on financial television or you need to be in entertainment and I'm up against Showtime and billions, like everybody's going to pick them, not me. Um So it's been a real learning experience. And I will say, like, my own work helps me a, a tremendous amount uh-huh. um, to deal with the frustration of it or them trying to humiliate me, you know, or make me look stupid or and then to see like more and more instances of it. I mean, just this past season, it seemed like they were trying to troll me. I mean, they they mentioned NASCAR, which I, you know, it's public that I work with a NASCAR team, and I don't think she would ever talk NASCAR. It's not her kind of background. Uh-huh. You know, then she wore a dress that I'd worn in, in a bunch of pictures last year. I mean, maybe it's coincidence, huh. but it kind of seems unlikely under the circumstances. Some days it's super annoying. Some days it's, funny i mean like the dress and the nascar thing were pretty just they just made me laugh (laughs) and like there's this hedge fund kind of sarcastic i don't know what you call it it's called deal breaker they've been writing stories about the dress (laughs) Um, (laughs) like i think to myself it's a good thing i can laugh at myself but why can i laugh at myself because i have a lot of practice at like having all of my emotions right do you
0: think your job is entertaining
1: i do think it's entertaining and i do think. (laughs) Like people always want to know, like, like one thing I figured out early on is that people turn the market into like a Rorschach blot, meaning they take their issues with like their self-confidence and their issues with authority or whatever their stuff is, right? Yeah. And the market's an authority figure. So you can react to the market as if it's like a father punishing you or, you know, a mother criticizing you or an older brother or whatever. Like it, even though I had psychoanalytic background, when I first started doing this, it was just about the emotions of confidence and conviction and fear. Like I didn't realize when I, even though I was in class at the Institute of Modern Psychoanalysis, I didn't realize that people were going to project their stuff onto the market. And basically I got a client like six months into it who had this crazy situation. and And then he told me his life story. It was really true that they matched. And then that's when I realized, wait a minute, these prices are moving around. If they go up, you make money. If they go down, so, like it, you're getting this tick- by tick assault on your ego. So of course you're going to project your insecurities onto it. So then, once I realize that, like then you know, now I have hundreds, if not thousands, of stories about how people's basically their the totality of their self-image and whatever the nuances are get worked out in their traits, right? So that ends up being like super interesting to people.
0: that is super interesting. I agree with you.
1: So mm-hmm.
0: let's talk about intuition brain games because, you created this. Why don't you tell us what it is and why people need it? And and you mean, it's to improve some of these skills, right, that we're talking about?
1: Yes. If I go back to the like information or in or irrelevant feelings or intuitive or impulsive, like intuition, just feels calm, like it doesn't it doesn't urge you to do anything. You just have this sense of knowing this physical bodily sense of just knowing. There's two experiments, one in 1944 that showed people impute a story to geometric shapes moving around a page. And then one in 2007, showing that the traders who were best at predicting people were best at predicting markets. Really? So those two are the same, the shapes moving around a page and creating a story out of that. predicting people are the same because you're predicting what the shapes are going to do predicting what people are going to do is the same as predicting where the price is going to go people forget to think about that but they're both called theory of mind you're using theory of mind to predict the shapes and you're using theory of mind that's the name for the brain facility of predicting other people to Hmm. predict price so we created this game where you can practice watching the shape and you're predicting what they're going to do. But the way you get the right answer is to like focus on what's happening and not think. Just listen to whatever your body tells you. Huh. And that's the skill people don't have. If you get better at it, you'll be better at recognizing that same sensation when you're looking at the market. So it's meant to familiarize you with that really calm sense of intuition, unconscious pattern recognition. Using theory of mind.
0: I mean, I did it last night. So I'm thinking about, so you don't really want to think and I wasn't very good. So I need to work no, you don't out. It. You, yeah,
1: you, you want to feel. Yeah, you just want to watch carefully yeah. and then turn your, you know, your conscious cognitive attention to what, what your body tells you. Like oh, your, okay. body, your body will say the right answer is whatever. The circle is going to move to the square. Your body will give you an answer and it'll be really subtle, quiet feeling.
0: And will people who are better at it, you know, do better or?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, like, one of the most intuitive traders I know, a couple of weeks ago, I asked him to test it and he texted me. He goes, I just did the first one. I got five out of five. I'm like, not surprised. And at the same time, I was, another guy was testing it for me who is really, really technical and like overthinks things and gets and admits he gets in his own way overthinking things. He's like, this is the stupidest game. I can't do this at all. He goes, but I gave it to my wife and she can do it. Why is that? <laughs> I
0: love it. I love it.
1: So, I mean, one of these days we'll get around to, you know, doing enough statistics on it to show, I mean, you're not going to get five out of five randomly. Never mind. Like if you, you know, you play it 10 times and I don't know, you'd have 29 out of 40, the numbers show that there's something to it, right? Got
0: it. Got it. Well, I didn't fare that well. I was in the middle. I was like a two and a three, I think. So I'm my intuition
1: People get frustrated. So people subscribe, like we get some people who subscribe and like two hours later, they unsubscribe. (laughs) They'll be like, okay, they're not doing very well and they're frustrated and they're mad. And they're like, this is stupid. You know, it's meant for people to play, you know, a few minutes a day and just try to access that really subtle feeling.
0: Yeah, I get it. That's so cool. Okay. Check it out at intuition brain games, you guys. All right, Denise, I've got a final question for you. I told you you are too interesting, too many good things to talk about. So I'd love to hear your take on, on my audience. So let's say you're coaching a woman who's thinking about getting into a technical field, one that's majority held by men. So for me, it's technology. For you, it's finance. She isn't sure she's cut out for the work. How do you coach on that?
1: Well, I'd first be like, why? Why aren't you? What are the fears? What's the prediction? she's predicting that if she does it and takes the job she's going to feel a certain way
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and at the moment that she's doing that she's thinking that that ain't going to be good i'm going to be miserable there you know (laughs) get all that out on the table and then sort it out as to what's more likely and less likely i can basically guarantee you within that there's like one or two real fears that in some number of cases aren't even going to have anything to do with the actual they're going to be like really afraid of like leaving her kids at home or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's going to be something else. But once you sort them out, and usually by definition, you can sort of easily reduce the number, then you can investigate what the remaining ones are really about. Once you shine sunlight on that, a number of them are going to be diluted. And usually somewhere in that process of reducing the fears down to what they really are you, you gain some courage to take them on.
0: Denise thank you so much for being on the podcast today.
1: Thanks for having
0: me. Hey, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you have to sign up for the UR Techie email list. Imagine being in the tech job of your dreams. Join me to get the strategies training and never ending support to get hired. Sign up at URTechie.com. That's Y-O-U. A-R-E-T-E-C-H-Y dot com. I'll see you next time.